Shalom and welcome again to Seekers of Meaning, the podcast arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. I'm your host, Rabbi Richard Address. We thank you very, very much for uh, sharing some of your time with us uh, as we try to explore some of the issues and the impacts of the revolution on longevity to our families, our congregations, our communities, and also ourselves. And again, if you'd like to um, contact us uh, with some ideas or suggestions for the these podcasts, please feel free to email me at rabbiaddress at jewishsacredaging.com. And it is with a great deal of pleasure and, and honor that we welcome Dr. Stephen Post uh, to this today's edition of uh, Secrets of Meeting. Dr. Post, well known in the area of caregiving and healing and a variety of different allied associations. Dr. Post is the director of the Center for Medical Humanities, Compassionate Care, and Bioethics at the Renaissance School of Medicine at Stony Brook University, uh, someplace up the road from us. I think it's in New York. Um, but as a Philadelphian, New York, welcome. Dr. Post, thank you very, very much for joining us. It is a real pleasure and an honor to have you with us. I hope you're well. Well, it's a delight to be with you, uh, Rabbi Address, and thank you so much for having me. The, uh, I have a couple of books that we want to talk about. They're your most recent book uh, is this very, very fascinating book called Dignity. Um, for Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People, the subtitle is How Caregivers Can Meet the Challenges of Alzheimer's Disease. And I want to take a little bit of a look uh, and unpack some of these issues from this book, especially. We'll get to the Route 80 book uh, a little bit later, if it's okay. Uh, the Continually, the most requested session and workshops that we are asked to do in Jewish Sacred Aging has to do with caregiving, because it is a new life stage uh, and uh, usually comes upon people quickly. And there's no curriculum for it. Uh, and it's very personal and private. And you begin your book on dignity with this absolutely wonderful sentence, quote, good caregivers are the salt of the earth, resilient, kind, and inspiring, despite their many challenges. Talk to me about that sentence, a great sentence. It's also very, very true. When you reflect a little bit on the times that we live in, the horrendous actions of hurt and violence and selfishness, these individuals are the salt of the earth. They are the exemplars. They teach us what it means to respond to vulnerability, what it means to be dependent on another and to respond to that dependence. So I've found caregivers to be inspiring since I was a young person. And I've traveled all over the U.S. Uh, uh, with uh, caregiver organizations, and I've never failed to be absolutely impressed and uplifted, uh, despite the fact that there are burdens and challenges. But I do think that uh, caregivers uh, find, uh, find meaning, they find purpose, they find joy, and they teach us how to live. Uh, I, I'm fascinated how people come to do what they do and you you came to stony brook from case western and, and you're um very famous for that institute on love that you created and what what was it if you don't mind if 
what was it the motivating factor for you to get involved in all in, in all this? What was well, there some aha to, moment? Well, with regard to deeply forgetful people, um, my grandmother uh, passed away of what was probable Alzheimer's disease. Although at the time they didn't really use that specific language terribly much, she had senile dementia, and she was a wonderful woman. She was very gentle. This was before they had peg feeding, so it was assisted oral feeding. And I would come into a nursing home and I would sit with Grandma Post and I would uh, do this incredible ritual with a spoonful of applesauce and the like. And and what I discovered is that even though oftentimes her chin was down and she was not communicating, I had to be open to surprises, which is how I, I think of hope in this particular practice, because you never know. There are these moments of unexpected lucidity. And she would look at me and she said, Stevie once, don't put your peas on your fork with my thumb. <laughs> you know, now I do remember her telling me that once upon a time when I was a boy. But, you know, um, that was what stimulated me so much that there's always something underneath this loss. And you can never say that the person is gone or a husk or empty uh, or a shell or any of those kinds of negative metaphors because you got to be noticing the expressions of continuing self-identity. And if you really touch on those and, prov and even uh, uh, you can provoke them a little bit uh, with music and with art and with singing with your loved one. Um, you just want to recognize that there's a lot more there than meets the eye. Is this what you were right about in the book about terminal lucidity? Well, you know, uh, I'm actually doing a major study on paradoxical lucidity, which is not the same as terminal lucidity. That's something that people study uh, in the context of very near death moments, when suddenly a person who's sort of out of it comes into it. Right. But paradoxical lucidity is something that anecdotally many, many caregivers will note. They're completely surprised that someone they thought was just uh, out of it uh, can be uh, quite stimulating. Uh, you can do it with, uh, in, in Brooklyn, we have a, um, a, a, a memory center and we have Alzheimer's poets. And you can have 20 or 30 individuals who are deeply forgetful gathered around in chairs. They're not communicating with one another or with their caregivers who accompany them. But when you get a couple of Alzheimer's poets who sing the road not less traveled, almost like Robert Bly would do, and really brings them into it, most of them will chime in for a line or so. Many will chime in even for a whole verse, and some will actually do the whole poem and then stand up. And afterwards, um, they may be able to converse if you're careful about how you use language, uh, for a few minutes, and then they may fade away. But for the caregivers, just seeing this kind of aliveness inside, um, it's absolutely stimulating. And they realize that what they're doing is terribly meaningful and that their loved one is still there. Grandma's still there, if you will. I have a chapter by that title. And, I, and I, I'm totally opposed to uh, discriminating against people because they are memory imperiled. So you use a deeply forgetful people instead of dementia. 
Why? I have never, I got, I, I may refer to you as Richard. Is that good? Yeah, uh, that's my name. Yeah, that's right. Okay. That's okay. So I uh, have never been comfortable uh, outside of a neurological clinical context uh, with the word dementia. You know, um, it's structured like the word retard, right? Dementia, a decline from a former mental state. And that's what invites all these negative metaphors. And by the way, even the very derisive use of the word demented in political discourse, where someone will say, my opponent is just demented. And that is completely unacceptable. And so it's also divisive. You know, there on that side are the people who are demented and there, here am I, you know, so it's them versus us. Deeply forgetful is more of a continuum. You know. I have my moments. I can go behind this medical school and have to ask a medical student, do you know where I parked my car today? No. If I ask them, do you know if I drove to work today? That's a little more serious. But, you know, we're, we're, we're always struggling with, um, uh, with memory and we have various techniques of kind of making up for that loss of memory of a name or an event. But it's not so discontinuous with the human experience. And so obviously, you know, it, it, it's a spectrum and, and, and some individuals become very severely deeply forgetful. But deep forgetfulness is something that is part of being human. And so it's not them versus us. It's, it, you know, it's, it's us wanting to realize that their experience is not completely alien to our own. So, you know, in, in the use of this term, uh, it raises the question that has come up in some of our classes and some other podcasts, do we need in our society, given what medical technology is capable of and the more we discover about deeply forgetful people and associated issues, do we need to create a new vocabulary? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And so part of this book is a new vocabulary. When I was at Case Medical School for 20 years, now going back to 1995, um, I was uh, in my office with some neurologists and uh, coined the term hypercognitive values. You know, people value other human beings strictly in terms of their cognition, their linear rationality, their ability, their means ends reasoning. Right. Now, people who are deeply forgetful aren't very good with that. In fact, they may lose it altogether, but they still have symbolic rationality, which is studied in my work. They can still uh, uh, relate to a sacred object, a piece of clothing that they identified with over the course of their lives. They can still uh, pray with a rosary or whatever it might be. Uh, and, and I've seen so much of this. So I think that, that we, we, we need to recognize that symbolic rationality is probably more important than linear rationality, because linear rationality is the reasoning of what you do. Symbolic rationality is the reasoning of who I am. So I knew a fellow named Clint in uh, Cleveland who worked in the, in the uh, steel mills all his life, and he always dressed country and western. And even at the very last day of his life, he was still grabbing onto that cowboy hat. Right. And somehow he knew that that told the story of his life, that it was, that was hooked up with his particular narrative. So I think we need new language. Deeply forgetful people is so much more beautifully inclusive. 
hypercognitive values, and 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 uh, and there are many other things. But I, I think we need to. Martin Luther King spoke about the beloved community, and he said you need first of all a language. You need a language that opens the door into that community for everybody. And uh, that's what I'd like to see. Yeah, the lang- language and where I mean, we've run across this in in some of our work, and we're stuck with vocabulary and language not only in English but sometimes even in Hebrew uh, for various stages of life that really need to be you know redefined. Uh, uh, I don't see it. Ha- I don't see this massive movement towards that, but it just seems to me that we're struggling with so many different stages of life. Um, and we put a term that has preconceived ideology or notions right. or perceptions about it. You also write about in the caregiving com- uh, a component, this, the value, I think that's a good word, the value of interdependence. Yes. Of interdependence. Walk me through what you mean by that. Well, so caregivers and deeply forgetful individuals actually reveal the ultimate reality of the human situation. Because we think, we run around, uh, I don't do nothing for nothing, as someone said not too long ago. We think we are independent, we are invulnerable, and, you know, that's a complete lie, because when we come into this world, we're totally dependent for a very long and protracted period of time. We'll have degrees of independence, but we're much more dependent than we think. And then, of course, as we grow older or as we are frail and and are subject to illnesses, we may become entirely dependent on others. So the the human situation is not uh, described by uh, invulnerability and independence, although we like to think that's true. Uh, It's actually uh, uh, described better by vulnerability and interdependence and if you had a system in the early part of the book, I talk about justice. If you had a system of healthcare justice and then more broadly justice generally that began with that point, imagine if we began with that sort of, you know, the philosophers would say ontological reality, everything would be very different. It's very interesting to use the word justice because in one of the sessions that we do on, on, uh, healthcare paying through the Jewish tradition. There's a whole series of scholars, contemporary scholars, who, who began to examine the question of what would be the Jewish approach to an equitable system of, of access and paying for healthcare. And they all come back to the concept in Hebrew of, of, of tzedakah, or tzedek, of justice. Mm-hmm. And uh, from a variety of different perspectives, arguing that if you are going to have a system of healthcare based upon the, system of the Jewish value of justice, it has to be equality of access um, and equality of pay. And there has to be a single payer, a basic common floor so that allows everybody to have that because that's a just and equitable system. So uh, I, I just, it's very interesting that, that you also, you must have read several of the uh, contemporary Jewish uh, sc- philosophers and scholars on healthcare access. Well, the love that you. does justice, you know, to quote <laughs> MLK, the love that does justice. And Abraham Heschel said the same thing. Well, yeah. You, know, you, he- can't, you can't love people 
as a caregiver and not ultimately become an advocate for them. That, that in your, this other book that, that also from, I think it's 2019, I'll hold this book up called uh, God and Love on Route 80, uh, a route that many of us have driven. Um, probably not saying that there's a lot of love there, but um, there's, a, there's a theme of hope. There's a theme of spirituality in both of these books uh, that bubble up a lot. So, so one of the things I guess I wanted to ask you as a result of that, in your belief, um, is there a spiritual gene within each human being? Yes. Well, that's a way of putting it. Um, I'm a University of Chicago guy through and through. Although at Reed College, Steve Jobs slept on my floor. Oh, Mazel Tov. Throw that out. <laughs> And we read Autobiography of a Yogi together. But, you know, um, John Eccles, Sir John Eccles, who won the Nobel Prize for all of his basic research on communication between brain cells, he often said and often wrote that he did not think that the human mind could be explained by matter, that it was not just derived from tissue, from brain. He thought there was something mysterious about the mind. And, of course, all the great Jewish mystics would agree with that. And, uh, you know, I was in, uh, uh, there's a town in the middle of Ohio. I spent 20 years living in Shaker Heights. Great community. I know, I know Shaker Heights. <laughs> and uh, uh, and, and a, a lot of great synagogues. Uh, and and uh, so Joe Foley, my, my neurology mentor, and I went down to Mount Vernon, Ohio, and there was a geriatric psychiatric hospital with a wing devoted to people with Down syndrome who were in their 50s. And so typically that is exacerbated by a diagnosis of something like Alzheimer's disease. You see a sort of development in reverse. Mm -hmm. And there were these wonderful Hindu nurses and nurses' aides who had actually formed a community down there, and they were caring for these 40 or 50 individuals so Beautifully, you know, you could just see the palpable care on their faces and your, their voices. The tone was just inviting. And so Joe and I took a few of them out to a pizza restaurant in uh, nearby Gambier, Ohio, uh, where uh, 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 Kenyon College is located. And uh, we asked them, so we don't think we've ever seen any people as devoted to pure love. For these individuals as we see in you. I mean, it was Hesed, if you wish, right. um, in, 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 in the most beautiful expression. Uh, and, and, uh, and they said, Namaste, which is the Hindu greeting, but it's more profound than you think sometimes. It means, I honor the divine in you as you honor the divine in me. So unlike Bertrand Russell, who said there is no human dignity because we're nothing but glorified pond scum, quote, um, you know, they said they, they saw something of, of a special divinity within each of us. And I think that uh, that is important. Now, not every tradition believes that way, but I do believe that way. I, I've never doubted for a moment that, uh, that, that underneath the loss of communication, the silence, even the chaos, there is still a soul, 
uh, a spiritual being. And a few years ago, I, I was in Bangalore, India, at the Indian Institute for Advanced Studies. Doing, we did a whole conference with Indian neurologists and philosophers about deeply forgetful individuals. And after I was done speaking, someone had walked in and everybody kind of turned their, their head. And it was the Dalai Lama. And he put his hand down on the table and he said, there is absolutely no reason to think less of somebody because their memory is weakened. And, they are, and he adopted my language of the deeply forgetful. So that's why the book has a nice endorsement from His Holiness. Right. And, and that's what we need. We need radical inclusivity. Uh, we, we need to stop thinking about how we can separate their experience from our own and we need to be noticers. That's a word that Larry Dossi uses. We need to notice the hints and the whispers and the winks and look at paradoxical lucidity where they actually sort of surprisingly maybe prompted by deeply personal music or whatever, they'll actually come into themselves and they'll be there. Are deeply forgetful people, do they, are they on a different plane of reality? Then perhaps I don't. I, I'm struggling to get the right words. So, so many times, uh, a clergy will will work with a with a family, and they'll come out to the, the memory care unit, and they say, "You know, that's really that's I'm 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 going to use a phrase that I've heard a lot. And that's not really my mom anymore." Oh, and and you want to say, but a it is, and perhaps they're. So are, are, is it perhaps that they're at a different level of reality than I am sitting in the ward or sitting in the in the bed or the, the chair next to the bed? So three quick vignettes. One, the great artist Willem de Kooning, the abstract expressionist, known for his anxiety, for being out in Bleecker Street in front of the cafe while I'm getting in fights and so forth really the artist of anxiety. He was diagnosed at Cornell Weill, and this is now 24 years ago, uh, in their memory center. And for 14 years, he had probable Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. He lived in a loft in the village with an assistant. He loved to wear that pair of dungarees that he uh, connected with. And then sporadically, he would just rise up and put his brush in the acrylic paint and go up to the easel and he would paint. And there was a posthumous exhibit with lots of reviewers. Many of them said, wait a minute, he's uh, an embarrassment. He doesn't have that depth and, and fervor and craziness. But actually, the, the, his painting was beautiful. It was more like Georgia O'Keeffe. It was more spiritual. It was more lighthearted. It was more connecting. He had somehow gotten free, I think, of the myth in our society. Again, you know, I don't do nothing for nothing. I, I repeat that, you know. Somehow he had come into his own and he'd come to a deeper spiritual level. So the reviewer Ilock said, wait a minute, here's a guy who had Alzheimer's for 14 years and for 13 and a half years, he painted on a completely different level, spiritually and thematically, than he had known earlier in his life. So what I would say is that deep forgetfulness disinhibited him. Ah, okay. It freed him up. It freed him up from a lot of the negative myths of our culture. Another case, I have a wonderful mentor 
an African-American man who used to be the chairman of Morehouse College Board of Trustees, a Clevelander. And his sister uh, passed away of probable Alzheimer's disease maybe a, a year and a half ago or so. And I was talking with him on the phone. We we're very close. And I said, Pastor, I won't give his name exactly, okay. but Pastor, um, when you were there with your sister, those, they were in Detroit, they were a Detroit family. Did you ever think for a moment that she was gone, that somehow she had vanished? Okay. And he said to me, no. In this wonderful sort of beautiful Morehouse style, he said, I think maybe she's gone down to the Amtrak station and she's got one foot on that blessed train for glory and she's ahead of us. And then, you know, my wife, uh, Mitsuko, is Japanese. I spent a lot of time in Kyoto uh, in some of those Buddhist temples meditating with people uh, who are deeply forgetful. And um, there was one wonderful caregiver, and she said, you know, uh, I've cared for my father-in-law. It's a patriarchal society. And one day he defecated on the tatami mat. And I was so upset. I was just frantically scrubbing the tatami to clean this up. And then I looked, I looked up and there was my father-in-law and he was smiling in the sun and the, the, the sun was radiating on his bald head and it had all the intonations that was sort of enlightenment type feel. And so as far as what you're saying about maybe they reach a different kind of a plane, I can believe it. I can believe it, and I've seen it. And uh, we've done focus groups on spirituality. Uh, you know, I knew a guy in Shaker Heights who was who was uh, had a reputation for being quite dastardly. <clears throat> and then once he was, uh, you know, deeply forgetful, he started insisting that he ride in the passenger seat up front in the van that took people to the Foley Elder Healthcare Center. And uh, he would escort individuals from the van into the center. And he was just warm. I mean, if warmth was electric, he would have been on fire. And he never, his, his family said he'd never been like that before in his life. So, we, we, you know, we may have something to learn about essential human spirituality from people who are deeply forgetful because they forget a lot of things, including all the junk that we load on them in our culture. You write that spirituality, quote, acts as a stress deterrent, unquote. Spirituality acts as a stress deterrent. In what way? Well, it does. You know, there's an organization in uh, Phoenix, uh, which is quite well known now, uh, Alzheimer's Prevention, uh, maybe .org. <clears throat> and their entire focus is on meditation and mindfulness and teaching uh, people who are actually diagnosed with some illness to which dementia is secondary, could be Parkinson's, it could be Alzheimer's or multi-infarct, whatever, but they actually teach them to use meditation. And they have some pretty good studies now, which have been published in primary journals, and they're suggesting that this can be beneficial. Because now, you know, so 15 years ago, I was at Berkeley, and there was a conference of about 15 or 20 of the premier neurologists in America. And, and believe it or not, 
all of them at that point were in the process of recognizing that stress contributes to Alzheimer's. Because when you have protracted stress, when you're living a life of hostility and rumination and bitterness and so forth, it keeps your stress hormones turned on. And it's true. We all know that affects vascular health. You know, it's, it's bad because metabolites turn into fatty acids. It slows wound healing a bit, but it also causes hippocampal atrophy. And that is the major hallmark diagnostically of probable Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. And so uh, if you can take a walk, listen to some beautiful music, maybe go to a restaurant and get some Mediterranean diet. <laughs> if you can be mirthful and break free of anxiety, you know, in, in some sense, um, Alzheimer's, I believe, is, uh, is, a, is an illness of the age of anxiety. Not that it hasn't always been around, but now we're living older and, and the stress that we have to navigate in our everyday lives is so sometimes overwhelming. I think it affects us neurologically. How does it affect the people who are caring for the Alzheimer's patient? Because I'm concerned with this tremendous growth, according to the Alzheimer's Association, that we're being told it's going to happen as our generation ages, my generation ages out. That there's just not enough people to take care of us. And I've known, I, I'm just wondering on a very, very deep personal level, when I'm caring for someone, how much of that psycho-spiritual trigger is, is this me in 20 years? Is this a not-so-subtle reminder of my own mortality? Uh, and that factors in, does it not, to the spiritual component of caregiving? Well, it's all those things. There's a nice book out with Johns Hopkins by Peter Whitehouse, who was my colleague for 20 years at Case Western, um, <clears throat> called American Dementia. And they point out that according to quite a few epidemiologists, we're having fewer cases of Alzheimer's per capita rather than more. And he attributes this to the healthy aging movement. Right. That people are generally taking better care of themselves. They're being more careful dietetically. They're watching their hearts. Uh, and all of this redounds to the benefit of brains as well. So it's not clear to me um, that we can't solve this problem to some degree through just very, very good, healthy, preventive activities and lives. Uh, but as far as caregivers go, sh- sure, you know, you're going to have that level of anxiety uh, to some degree. Uh, but I think that we underestimate the the gratification that people can feel as caregivers. It's the, the pervasive language is the burden of being a caregiver. Right. There before the grace of God go I. Burden, burden, burden. <clears throat> I used to write articles on, on the joy of being a caregiver. I could remember my grandmother who, uh, even when I was giving her applesauce and bran and so forth and assisted oral feeding, I can remember these moments when she just lit up and I could see brightness in her eyes and her emotions became very palpable and she might with a little luck on a given day even use my name 
And that's where the, the hope comes in because you see that what you're doing is very, very meaningful. You're not wasting your time. And I think that, that noticing and that ability to interact, even how we use language. You know, I tell a story in the book about a guy named Jim at a nursing home in Chardon, Ohio. He was in the uh, special care unit for people with dementia. So Joe Foley, the great neurologist, and I went into his room and we read the little bio sketch on the wall, which is a good thing. <clears throat> and we went out into the room, into the main room, and I asked a nurse, can you point out Jim? And she did that. And I took Jim by the arm and we sat down. And I said, Jim, how are your sons? And he couldn't respond at all. He got very nervous. Uh, his eyes widened and he was clearly anxious. But then I remembered, never an open-ended question, because that puts him on the spot. So, and there's a lot about language in this book. Right. I said, right. Jim, how's Ray? And he lit up. Right. And then I said, how's Jonah? And he lit up because I was using language to cue him in on things that were meaningful. And then he had a white stick that was kind of like a twig that he had in his hand. And he put it in my hands. And when he did that, he said to me, God is love. And I was astonished. So I asked the nurse a little later, I said, what was Jim doing with that twig? And she said, well, he grew up on a farm in Ohio, and this is northeastern Ohio, uh, and he loved his father very much, and his father was a very a spiritual man, and he gave Jim a chore in the morning, which was to bring kindling in for the fireplace. So like a lot of these individuals, Jim had gone back years into in his life to the point that he associated with tender, love, loving care, and that twig, that white twig, was a symbol of that. And then there was a, a, on the floor next to him, there was this beat up old rag doll, the kind of thing that you might give to your child when she's two years old, you know, it's got the wool and, and fits on the fingers. And this had been through like several world wars. It didn't look like much at all. So believe it or not, Jim walked over to that doll and he bent down, slowly picked it up. And then he walked over to a woman in the corner who was whimpering and crying and he put it on her lap oh. and she stopped crying and i asked the nurse so what's the story with that doll and and she said well that's her doll and and so whatever you want to say about people who are deeply forgetful jim had a lot of emotional intelligence more so than a lot of us we rushed by each other going from point a to point b he was living in the moment he was living in the now and he was emotionally sensitive to that woman in her corner so we can learn from Jim. The it's it's interesting. It goes to again what we were talking about before: the real need for a different level of vocabulary, almost. And I don't know whether one exists. A whole curriculum around caregiving. You know yes. how how uh, how to speak to someone, and like you said, no open ended questions, and and. Even in the beginnings of this process, what not to say, like, uh, it, it, it becomes more complex, I think, as, as more research is done on this and we, and we understand this more and more and more. The healthy aging stuff, I really do believe it. I, I, I know that there's a lot of stuff in the newspapers about, oh, this is, everybody's going to get Alzheimer's. If you're 85 years of age and over, something's going to happen to you. 
But we also notice, at least in our community, this explosion of interest in health and wellness. Uh, and and it's, there's a lot of Jewish text on this, which we don't have to go into now. But what you are saying in, in, in that one perspective, we, in our tradition, this is sacred work. It's the fifth commandment. It's really, yes. the, it's not. So when we talk to caregivers, it's you're, you're, you're doing sacred work. Yes. This is sacred work. It's holy yes. work. And holy I, work. I will, it, it, it is. I, uh, before we start running out of time, I, I also want to ask you about one other concept that you write about in the Route 80 book, uh, and that is uh, synchronicity. Um, other than sounding like a rock group from the 70s, <laughs> uh, which I think actually there was. What, well, what is that? I think there probably was. I don't know. I, th- I think so. I think so. Yeah. yeah. But it's a word that um, has been around for a while. A lot of people attribute it to Carl Jung, the psychiatrist. He wrote a book on synchronicity. He had a patient. He wasn't making any progress with her. And uh, she started talking about a dream she'd had the night before about a very rare silver beetle in Northern Europe that no one ever sees. And then Jung heard a little tap, tap, tap on the window behind his chair, and he swiveled around, and there was this rare beetle. And he sort of put it in his palm, and he handed it to her. And then she completely lit up. She became completely communicative, and they had a very, very therapeutic relationship for many years. And he would call that synchronicity, something that's so unexpected. He called it uncaused causality. It's, it's, it, it somehow suggested to him that there's much more that we experience in our lives of a very cherishing God or ultimate reality or supreme being, whatever your tradition might be. And so God and Love on Route 80 is about uh, 12 episodes of synchronicity that I had from very early in life that really shaped my my journey. And so I'm a believer that, that we're much more cherished than we know. And that sometimes, you know, it's the perfect person in the perfect place at the perfect time saying the perfect thing. You, in, in, in the Jewish tradition, you have a particular expression for that. Um, um, it was takum. Tikkun Tikkun That's the repair of the world. Yeah. And, and that's always happening. But we have to notice it. And, the, you know, the problem is that sometimes we're rushing, uh, we're caught up in chronological time, but we have to slow up a little bit. So I don't believe th- that, that anybody makes their life. I don't think I created my life. I just in- encountered the right people and I responded to them with creativity and joy and kindness. And that's the whole story of my life. So synchronicity is just having this spiritual sense that we're much more loved in this universe than we take the time to realize. Well, you do write of a universal mind. Uh, yes. In, so the last question I have to ask you, because as I was reading this, and the, my, my rabbi metaphor popped up, Route 80, is that any type of metaphor or symbolism for life's journey itself, various off-ramps and the the that oh yeah i just yeah. or was i well, totally totally off the wall on that 
Not at all. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's a metaphor, but it's also the reality that, you know, when I was 15, I was up in New Hampshire at a Episcopal boarding school, a place called St. Paul's, and I did have this dream. And um, it repeated itself four or five times over the course of the year. And it was a road heading to the west. Um, it was very foggy. I couldn't see more than a few feet. And then, just out of the corner of my eye, I saw a youngish guy with dirty blonde hair that looks like he was about to jump off a ledge. And then suddenly, a, a, a voice came into this dream and the face of a woman. And it said, If you save him, you too shall live. And then the mist alighted, and I knew it was heading west. So this is very strange. But <clears throat> when I was 17, instead of going to Swarthmore, which is a good Philadelphia area school, yes, it is. I decided I was going west to follow the dream. I ended up going to Reed College. And um, that summer, um, as I hitchhiked across the country on Route 80, there's a long lot to this, um, I was living in the Mission District in San Francisco with my cousin George, and uh, it was time to go up to Oregon for because Reed's in Portland, Oregon. And uh, as I was walking over the Golden Gate Bridge, it was early, early morning. It was a thick fog. I couldn't see more than a few inches in front of me. I got to the middle of that big arch and I looked to my left and there was a guy about to jump off the edge. And I looked at him and he looked at me and I said, I surely hope you don't plan to jump. And he started cussing. You know, it's like Macbeth, you know, life is empty nothingness. And I said, you know, I agree with that, but I want you to come over here and talk with me about it. And eventually he did. And I told him the whole story about the dream, about Route 80, about the road west. And about how in my dream, I'd seen someone who reminded me of him because he had this dirty blonde hair and he was in the, you know, I, I don't know if he was on drugs or not, but at any rate, um, he came over and I said, if you, if you, if you sit here with me, I'm going to give you a, something that will change your life. And he said, what's that? And then he was cussing again. I said, it's a Gahon zone. So I pulled this scroll. That's a Hindu, uh, it's a Buddhist scroll actually. Um, and I unscrolled it and I said, this, this will change your life. It will change your luck. And I explained some of the symbols, universal mind, universal love. And, and, and then I wrote a note to my cousin, George Lamont. You may have heard of Lamont Gloves. That was George. Uh, George was a two-time uh, Green Beret in Vietnam, an amazing guy, Chapel Hill graduate in Chinese studies. And I said, Dear George, this is Harry. Please let him sleep on the floor where I slept and take him to the Nichiren Shosho Buddhist temple and let him be healed and take care of him. And George did that. And eventually Harry went back to North Carolina uh, and, uh, it, you know, has done well. But the point is that as I walked the, down that, that bridge, that span to the north, after that event, the, the sun just shone so radiantly. I couldn't believe it. All the mist disappeared. And I just felt like somehow or another, even though I had that dream, it was two years earlier, and it was 3,000 miles away in New Hampshire. Somehow I felt that I had an experience that was beyond time and place, and that we are much more one than we realize. And so the, the, the synchronicity, the oneness of mind, uh, all of that is 
is something very profound for me. So that's what God and Love and Route 80 is about. And that's what your life is about, isn't it? It is. Yeah, I've just been following Route 80, and I couldn't be I couldn't be happier or or more fulfilled. And in a lot of ways, I think uh, you know, all whatever success I've had has come because um, I went out on Route 80 when I was a kid. Thank you very much, Dr. Stephen Post. Thank you very very much. I really appreciate your time and. And what you've done and what you will continue to do. So I wish you health and joy and continued success. But right now, especially most of all health. So thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Richard, for having me. To all of you, thank you very, very much for joining us on today's edition of the Seekers of Meaning, the podcast arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. And again, if you want to reach us, Rabbi address at jewishsacredaging.com or visit us on the Facebook page, Jewish Sacred Aging at Facebook. If you'd like to help support our work in these podcasts, please go to the website, jewishsacredaging.com and click on the donate button. We appreciate your support. Seekers of Meaning is produced at the media studios of Lubetkin Media here in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And a shout out to our producer, Steve Lubetkin. We thank you for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Post today. And to all of you, just stay safe, stay healthy, be kind to one another. Shalom.